Welcome to the Sunday Service Podcast of First Universalist Church, a Unitarian Universalist congregation located in Minneapolis, Minnesota. We are a radically welcoming and progressive religious community, deeply committed to love, justice, spiritual growth, and living out our values in the world. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org. Death is a crucial part of my spirituality, and it is my non-negotiable. It has been ever since I was eight years old, because when I was eight, I saw and spoke with my grandmother, Jessie, after her death. She had died of colon cancer, a cancer my mom was diagnosed with two years ago, and a cancer I will most likely be stricken with within my lifetime. Still, in this quintessential moment, seeing and speaking with a loved one after the departure made me realize this. One, death is not an end, but a transition. And two, death is an invaluable part of life. With death comes ancestors, who are equally significant as the descendants life creates. I desire a space, a ritual to honor death and those who came before us, to normalize death and stop othering it, to embrace the beauty of the change that comes, even when the immediate change is painful and difficult to see beyond. First Universalist is my primary house of worship, and I imagine us having a living space, not just for our descendants, like the nursing corner in the back, but also a living space for our ancestors, with photos and objects of significance that people can ritually tend to. Imagine the power of hearing and feeling our ancestors every time we enter that space, the same way that we can hear and feel a descendants in the back. As an African-American, I come from a bloodline, a spiritual ancestry, where death is not seen as an end, but a transition to a new plane. I experienced the spiritual truth firsthand when I saw my grandmother, Jessie, almost 30 years ago. Accepting death as a transition is the reason why I wish my living grandmother, Thelma, would die. She's 98 years old, and I love her with all of my heart. I say her name every time of service during the circle of life. But she has been suffering for years and is on hospice care. Last week, she had another fall, and I got the oh-so-painful text from my father stating she was in the hospital again. Each time she goes in, the doctors repair whatever body part is injured, but the suffering does not end. Now, no matter how many repairs she receives, she's still dying, and I still wish for that death to come for her. I want her suffering to end. I want my grandmother to be birthed into a new existence, an ancestral one, where she can receive the honor of being an ancestor. But she is not the only one that I long to die. I long for America to die too. The foundations of our country, white supremacy, genocide of the native people, and enslavement of another are rotten. Yet similar to my grandmother, we as citizens are only repairing the broken parts while its foundations and its people are still suffering. But is it just enough to let it die? No. 
Let our current America die to make room for a new America to be birthed into existence. And as we embrace the beauty of the change that comes with death, let us listen to our ancestors for the wisdom on how to make a new America with foundations that support and liberate all. I've been listening to a lot of Hamilton lately, and I love these lines from the musical. Let me tell you what I wished for, what I would have known when I was young and dreamed of glory. You have no control over who lives, who dies, who tells your story. I know that we can win and that greatness lies in you. But remember, from here on in, history has its eyes on you. History has its eyes on you. One day, you will become an ancestor. One day, you will die. So what will you leave for the descendants who follow you? What is your non-negotiable? Because history has its eyes on you. It's really good to be together. In my ministry with you over these past nine years, we've had a number of these Sundays following an election. And what I know is true and what matters so deeply to me is that regardless of who won or who wins or what amendments passed or didn't pass, what we do every single time is come back together as a community, as one body, to remember our core central religious values and tenets and continue to work for those in the world, no matter who has won the election. And so we begin that again this Sunday. On Wednesday, when we gathered for a post-election service in this sanctuary, uh, Reverend Karen Hutt, I saw Karen here somewhere this morning, I don't know if she's still, there she is, there's Karen shared a beautiful poem uh, from Langston Hughes that he had written in 1935 called Let America Be America Again. And in beautiful verse, Hughes essentially called for the death of the America that was, that had never been America, and offered a clear-eyed vision of an America, a United States that was not yet, but must be. Over 80 years later, Puerto Rican-American Ada Limon wrote a new national anthem, essentially calling for the death of the national anthem we know and sing, reminding us of that brutal third verse of the song, that life-denying thing that is snaking underneath our country, revealing the ugliness that is just below the surface. Both of these poets and their words have been in my head and in my heart this morning, as have the words from Darren in our call to worship. And it seems clear to me as I reflect on Ada Limon's poem There is nothing hidden beneath the surface anymore. All the vile is out and visible. Two years ago, many of us were stunned as election night results came in. I remember clearly the next day and in the days that followed conversations with people of color and postings on Facebook and other media from people of color saying, why are you surprised? This isn't a surprise. This is the America we know. This is, this is America. This is the United States we know. Two years ago, people of color were channeling the words of Langston Hughes, and though Hughes dreamed of a land of liberty, where opportunity is real and life is free, where equality is in the air we breathe, Hughes and people of color knew this is not the America we have. And so this morning, just days after the election, 
the invitation that I want to put out to all of us is to continue to see clearly the United States as it is. And it is racial lies about the dangers of brown people, lies about this threatening caravan of families and children and youth and men seeking asylum, lies used to stir up fear. Now, fear is warranted, yes, but we need to see clearly that it is not immigrants or brown people or black people we should be afraid of. This past Sunday, when I was with a number of um, interfaith colleagues at a retreat, uh, an overnight retreat on Sunday, we were together and we were talking about ways we can be with one another, support social cohesion, and build up reservoirs of trust amongst one another in these challenging times. And Rabbi Zimmerman, the senior rabbi at Temple Israel, shared how important and meaningful it was to have the interfaith community together uh, following that attack on the Tree of Life synagogue. She also shared with us that when she spoke to her security team before that gathering several weeks ago, she said, you need to be on the lookout for middle-aged white men. That's who you should be afraid of. It's often white men who are radicalized by the extreme and hate-filled views that one can so easily find online, in chat groups, in the toxic corners of the internet. It's often white men who are taking guns and assault weapons into synagogues and churches and dance clubs and schools and workplaces and newsrooms and anywhere else you can imagine. It is not immigrants or brown people or black people who are mailing pipe bombs to reporters and public officials. And in the highest office of our land, it is a white man who declares again and again that the press, when they speak truth to power, is the enemy of the people. It is a white man and the white people of his administration who shared a doctored video of what really happened, this distorted video of what really happened in this press conference earlier this week. And it is white men claiming voter fraud or cheating in Georgia and Florida, claiming that somehow votes should stop being counted, when the reality, both historically and contemporarily, is that people of color are the ones who have been swindled or suppressed or cheated or denied their right to vote. I'm lifting this up because we need to see clearly what is happening in our country. And if you don't believe in the power of white supremacy culture, then imagine an elected black man saying to a white woman in the press corps, you know, that's a stupid question. You're a low IQ person. That is, you're nasty. And imagine that just kept happening. You can't. Because it wouldn't happen. And that is the power and the hold of white supremacy culture on this country. We need to see that clearly. And part of what we need to see clearly, friends, are the bright spots in this election, the birthing of a new United States, the birthing of something new. Florida restored the right to vote to 1.4 million formerly incarcerated people. That, that is a roadmap for the healing of our democracy. That is powerful. Massachusetts protected transgender rights. That is a powerful roadmap. And women, native women, women of color, white women were elected across this country. 
Women were elected in record numbers, including Lucy McBath, a gun control advocate whose black son, Jordan Davis, a high schooler, died. He died, he was shot by a white man in 2012 in a gas station because he was playing his music too loud. His mother, Lucy, a gun control advocate, was elected to Congress. Change is coming. And two, two Muslim women were elected to Congress, one from our own state. That is something we can celebrate. And in Minnesota, and in many parts of the country, as I read the news and took in the stories, government is beginning to actually look like the people of this country and represents the gender and diversity that we know is a part of this country. So that is a bright sign as well. Change is coming. And we need to see very clearly in this moment and to know that what's playing out right now is a continuation of a story that started 400 years ago. This story, a narrative, a narrative that white people, that Anglo-Saxon people specifically were supreme, were better, were smarter, were more emotionally important, who had better ideas, who were just on the top of the racial hierarchy because that's how God wanted it. They were better than black. Yeah, and you can hiss. Whoever just hissed, that is hiss-worthy. Hiss that is hiss-worthy. That's the story that started. And make no mistake, that social construction of race, because we know now because of the Genome Project and all these things, there's actually, this is, I just read this the other day, there is more in common between a white person in the United States and probably somebody then in Somalia, genetically, than there is from someone in Somalia and Zimbabwe. Okay, so race is a construct, it's made up. We have different color skin because of evolution and where we were on the continent. It is a total social construct, but it's a construct designed to control power, who has it, who doesn't, and control resources, who has resources and who doesn't. We need to see that. And as a church, we need to understand how we are shaped in part by that story. It's woven into our DNA as a faith and as a church. Many of the heroes of our faith, Ralph Waldo Emerson included, believed the Anglo-Saxon race to be superior to other races. And though Emerson did argue for abolition, I recently learned on a podcast, and I commend this podcast to you, it's called Seeing White, and on this podcast called Seeing White, I learned that he wrote a book called English Traits. In this book, he argued that the real Americans were New Englanders of a certain stock who came from Northmen. The English face, Emerson wrote, combines decision and nerve with the fair complexion, blue eyes, and open, florid aspect. Hence, the love of truth. Hence the sensibility, the fine perception, the poetic construction. Now, Emerson lectured on these ideas, and in his private writings, says historian Nell Irvin Painter, Emerson made clear he did not oppose slavery out of concern for enslaved people. Emerson wrote, the captivity of a thousand Negroes is nothing to me. As Nell Irvin Painter explains, Emerson thought slavery was bad for the enslavers, too barbaric for people like him. This is certainly a less well-known part 
of Ralph Waldo Emerson. It was new to me. But what it illuminates once again is the pervasiveness of this thinking in the ways it has shaped our faith and our country. This thinking is part of what is in our very DNA. And we have to remember when we think about Ralph Waldo Emerson and this New Englander, we have to remember that it was many New Englanders who came and settled and founded the city of Minneapolis and founded this congregation. So how could they not be somewhat or wholly shaped by that discourse? This discourse that essentially said this is a country who is primarily meant for white people and other folks can help extract resources or we will extract resources from other people to benefit white people. So let me say, I don't want to beat us up about this history. Instead, I want to suggest that we just need to see it clearly and that we have to continue to look for and then root out these patterns and practices of white supremacy thinking that exists here and exists in our community. The patterns that exist here, they are not as blatant as racist propaganda and arguments for white nationalism or anti-Semitism, but I'm positive they exist. And I'm not going to beat up on white men either. I don't think that's helpful. Lord knows we're oppressed enough as it is. <laughs> and I just want to say, if you're a white man in this space and you're having a reaction, um, here's what's true for me. Maybe this resonates with you. I think we are socialized in this country as boys, as youth, as men, to have a very narrow bandwidth of emotional expression. And so there's a lot of grief and sorrow in life. That is part of what, is, what happens in life. We lose people. Things don't happen. We want them to happen. And so one of the ways, then, that this grief and sorrow comes out, I think, is sideways. And it comes out as anger and violence. I think that's a piece of what is going on and what we're seeing. I also think in this moment that when the privilege and power of men is sort of being named and it's no longer just invisible, men start to feel uncomfortable and a little like anxious and sort of threatened that it's now, everything's now visible. All of this is to say, we are at a very critical point in our country's story in the effort to create and to give birth to a more perfect union. As the Reverend William Barber said two years ago, a dying mule always kicks the hardest. He said this right after the election in 2016, a dying mule always kicks the hardest. And I wonder, is that what this moment is about? Is the old America dying, thrashing around, stirring up fear of Muslims and immigrants and people of color and others, stirring up fear about transgender folks or gay and lesbian or bisexual folks, stirring all that up in hopes of just living a little bit longer? Well, friends, if that's the case, then we have a role to play in helping that old America die, and perhaps we can help midwife a new United States into being. All right. All right. But if we're going, but if we're going to do that, and do that authentically, we have got to keep our eyes wide open, and we cannot be complicit with any of those dying kicks or twitches or thrashes. We cannot be complicit in the grabbing and holding on to systems of power that secure power for white folks and deny power and resources for others. And this is where this gets personal. 
especially for those of us who identify as white. And this is where the rub has been in our racial justice journey from the very beginning when we started five and a half years ago. And I have heard it expressed and I have thought this at times myself. So I'm in this learning curve with you. It has come out like this, this kind of rub and this pushback. Like I'm not a racist. Why are we talking about this so much? Or it comes out like this. You know, the problem with Black Lives Matter is their tactics. I could support them if they used different tactics. The main rub from the beginning has been to understand that it is not about individual prejudice, but about systems, a school system, a housing system, a criminal justice system, a policing system and structure that benefit white people with resources and power and harm people of color. The work is to understand how those systems are invisible to those who benefit from them and to recognize that saying something like, all lives matter, right? Like, that's, our faith says that, all lives matter. That flattens the reality and the history of our country when a simple cursory study of that history would inform you that all lives simply do not matter. The work for us is to understand how a white supremacy culture still lives in this place and distorts the authentic expression of our faith. So the work we began over five years ago is critical to the death of the old United States, to the death of the old Unitarian Universalism, and to the birth of the new. We must listen to the voices of people of color, to those with different life experiences, to those who speak hard truths to us in love. When I hear something hard from anyone in this congregation around our racial justice journey that pushes me, that challenges my white cultural pattern, I start to think of it now as a love letter. Like this is someone who cares about this community and who we are and how we are living into our values. And so when I get that initial sense of defensiveness or I'm not a racist, why would you bring that up? Like, I'm like, oh, you're writing me a love letter. You, you want me in this faith to actually live in the promise it says is at the heart of this faith that we are absolutely all connected, inextricably linked. And so this construction of race is not, you want me to live in that? You just wrote me a love letter. Thank you. Thank you. We have to know each other's stories. We have to listen to those stories and then incorporate those perspectives and stories into our actions and policies and practices. This is critical. What we do here matters in the birthing of the new United States. And as we lean and push and move toward this new birth of the United States, I want you to think fractals. Fractals as a pattern that is similar across scale, right? So we start here in this community in the work of building something new, a new Unitarian Universalism, a new United States, and we join our efforts, our energies with others, other faith communities, other communities outside of these walls, that pattern begins to ripple in the community, across the state, across the country. That is the murmuring I think we heard in this midterm election. It is not a done deal, but that desire for a new way of being, a new United States, that is the murmuring we're hearing. The work in front of us is not to pat ourselves on the back and say, yeah, we're in Minnesota. Like, look at us all progressive and awesome. Yeah. (laughs) Because, friends, both the Democrats and the Republicans have both been co-opted by white supremacy culture. Our job. That is true. So our job as people of faith is to see clearly, to hear that murmuring, to watch and be careful of the dying kicks of the mule and to help birth that new 
United States into being without being complicit with the old systems. We have to push to declare housing as a fundamental human right. It is enough that there are homeless people out right now at Franklin and Hiawatha. We have to push to place people in relationships over profit. I'm talking about the detention centers that are being built for immigrants. I'm talking about the prison the school-to-prison pipeline. We have our eyes on profiteers off human lives. We have our eyes on those people. And part of this work is to be curious and compassionate with ourselves, to say, how is it that I really haven't known this country? What parts of white supremacy culture live in me, and how can I be gentle with myself and with you as we find those and identify those subtle ways we have been complicit with this system? And friends, we have to reclaim our own stories. We have to know our own lineage, our own ancestors. Whiteness erases in so many ways where we came from and who our people were and what cultural practices and traditions and language and rituals come with that people and that culture. Part of this is reclaiming our own stories to know the nuances of where we came from. In doing this, We might live into the words of the poet Langston Hughes. Oh yes, he writes, I say it plain. America never was America to me, and yet I swear this oath, America will be. Out of the rack and ruin of our gangster death, the rape and rot of graft and stealth and lies, we the people must redeem the land, the mines, the plants, the rivers, the mountains, and the endless plain. All, all the stretch of these great green states and make America again. This is our sacred work. To help a new United States be born, to sing a new national anthem, a moral and spiritual song, a song of freedom and human dignity, a song of belonging, a song that feels like sustenance in our Bodies, a song where the notes are sung by even the ageless woods in the short grass plains, the Red River Gorge, the fistful of land left unpoisoned, the song that's our birthright, that's sung in silence when it's too hard to go on, that sounds like someone's rough fingers weaving into another's, that sounds like a match being lit in an endless cave, the song that says, My bones are your bones, and your bones are my bones. And isn't that enough? And isn't that enough? Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We're a faith community committed to racial justice, and together we give, receive, and grow— in the universalist spirit of love and hope. To learn more about who we are and our ministry, please visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org.